So we are going to be going through a good chunk of Mark today. In chapter 10, we're going to be starting in verse 13. Verse 13 is where we're going to start. And no, we did not forget verses 1 through 12. I try to be a team player whenever I have the opportunity to do so. I try to be supportive of our senior pastor. And so when we were working out the outline for this uh, and trying to figure out what weeks, who was going to be teaching and what those topics were going to be, and, and he was looking at uh, Mark um, verses one, uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, and he said, you know what, I feel like I should probably handle that one. I enthusiastically agreed and encouraged his excellent decision-making skills that that would be best for everyone. Also, let's be real, that would have given me divorce right after the week of talking about gouging out your eyeballs and cutting and dismembering yourself. So that would have felt like people, no one would ever want me to preach here again. So this is, this is better. I get faith like a child this week, which I am super pumped about, and hopefully you are as well. It has been an enormous blessing to me over the last couple of weeks pouring over this. And I, right now, before we handle the word of God, I'm going to pray that it would be a blessing for you as well. Father, I am so grateful for the privilege to be able to hold this word in my hand. I don't allow us to take that for granted. I'd help us to, to find joy in it and delight in it. God, as we, uh, as we anticipate the, the conference coming up and learning how to study it, God, we want to grow in that. God, we want to grow in our understanding of your word, our ability to handle it responsibly and, and in a way that is life-giving to us and, and to those around us and that honors you. God, it is your self-revelation and we want to steward that well. God, this morning, stir our hearts, stir our affections for you, stir our joy in you, stir our dependence on you and delight in you. That is only the way that you can. You are good, and it is in your precious name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. All right, so Mark chapter 10, verse 13. There's a crowd, as usual, crowded around Jesus. And it says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, which is how you would bless someone at that time. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them into his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. So we've got the crowd around Jesus and the parents are bringing their children in order for Jesus to see them and, and, and bless them. They, they want their kids to be around Jesus. And the disciples rebuke the parents and tell the kids to scram. And I love, I love Jesus' response that he is indignant. He is super bummed that they would be trying to keep the kids away from him. We don't know why exactly. We could probably assume that maybe they thought the kids were too immature to participate fully. Maybe they thought that they would be too disruptive. You know, they'd be fidgety and noisy. Maybe they thought that they would interrupt the adult conversation and ruin the discussion. Whatever the reason, we unfortunately often find ourselves in the position of the disciples in the church. In our effort to try to figure out how to manage and sequester the children. 
We find ourselves thinking that the sound of children in the room during corporate worship is disruptive and an interruption. <laughs> totally didn't even plan that. That was the Holy Spirit right there. <laughs> they gave me a for example. The sound of joy from a delighted child. Right? That's not an interruption. That's delightful. That is a beautiful picture of a little heart that is getting to observe and experience the older saints in the room loving and worshiping Jesus. Right? We forget far too often that the most impactful and effective way for children to learn how to love and worship Jesus is to watch their parents and other adults love and worship Jesus. I was at a pastor's conference a couple of weeks ago and one of the pastors, when there was, they were talking about worship and, and, and one of the stories that he told as a, as a pastor who is, who is well into his 60s says that he will never forget as a child being in church standing next to his father who was an ex-Marine and a very stoic, incredibly hard-working man. He, was a, he, he owned his own business and worked incredibly hard. He said, weak after week, I stood next to this man and listened to him belt out every song. Horribly. So he had a terrible voice. Terrible voice. And it did not in any way diminish his enthusiasm as I would watch my stoic ex-Marine father belt out every song. And this pastor went on to describe how that affected continues to affect his ministry and his worship of God. That that was so ingrained in him watching his father say and model to him when I am here, I worship. I'm okay with looking a little silly for worship. The reason we need our kids in the room and the reason we have them in the room, at least for the first part of corporate worship, is so that they can experience all of that with us together. That they can watch older men and women who love Jesus, love Jesus. So that they learn that's what that looks like. So that they don't feel alone in that. And they can see that modeled for them. And the other reason that we need children in the room during worship is because we have much that we need to learn from them. Right? Jesus asks us, as parents to bring our children directly to him. So that is definitely a piece of it. But here he also would lead us to believe that we need to be paying closer attention to them. Do we in the church believe that the father is more delighted with the child who dances in the aisle in joy and delight as we sing praises to God? Or is he more delighted by the adult who stands with arms stiffly at our sides or folded in subconscious defiance in front of us, coldly mouthing words that stir no emotion in us whatsoever? In case that stumped you, the answer is the child. Jesus prefers the child because he said so. He told us quite plainly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. In Matthew, the way he records it is he says, unless you become more like children, you will not have access to all that I'm offering you. So, 
Do we think that Jesus was just trying to be cute? Or do we believe that he is revealing to us a crucial reality of the kingdom of God that is essential for us to understand? I would prefer to err on that side, so that's what we're going with. Kids, just to name a few of their better qualities, tend to trust completely, believe extravagantly, depend entirely, and exude joy. Those are all traits that we could learn from. They, they trust completely. Children trust their parents almost irrationally, even terrible parents. Right? Over time, of course, that will erode, but the factory setting is one of trust because there are things that happen in those early stages of nurturing and feeding and caring. There is a connection that is built, that is developed, that lays a thick foundation of trust that it actually takes years of horrific abuse and neglect to finally erode that away. It will happen in those circumstances, but it takes a long time because the foundation of trust is there. We see this in serious ways and we see it in silly ways. Right? It, it doesn't actually really make sense that you can tell a child that an old stranger gained access to your house in the middle of the night, ate some of your food, and left them a present, and that's okay. So great, in fact, that let's all sing a song about how he watches you when you sleep. <laughs> That's super creepy. But when we tell that to our kids, what's their response? Hooray! Can I write the man a letter with some suggestions in case he decides to break and enter again next year? Why? Because they trust us. They said, if, if you're telling me this is good news, this must be good news. Even though in another context, this would be horrifying, we, we trust. We go, they, they say it's great, it must be great. All those things develop. It is so ingrained in those early stages that we simply take it for granted most of the time as parents. We just take for granted that that trust is there and has been built. We don't always steward that well. Now, Contrary to that, if you have stepchildren or you have ever fostered or you have adopted, then you know well that you do not start from a place of trust. That it takes a very long time of consistency and intentionality to develop that trust. Because all of those things, that foundation that is laid in the nurturing and in the caring and in those early stages, you don't have with, a, with an adult you just met. You have none of that. And the reality is that there is no child ever that has found themselves separated from their biological parent apart from tragedy. It is the only way that a child finds himself separated from their biological parent. And so you have little hearts that are already hardened and wounded and struggling to trust. And so it takes time. It took years for us to develop trust with our daughter. 
years of consistency, saying what we mean and keeping our word and following through and actively working towards building that foundation of trust. The reality is that's, that's a more accurate picture of where we are in relation to God, right? Because we are adopted children. Scripture says that through Jesus we have been adopted by the Heavenly Father and so we are, we are growing. Our, our, our wounded and hardened hearts are growing, are learning how to trust our Heavenly Father fully and completely, growing towards that trust, the goal being that childlike absolute trust. One of the moments that I realized we had made a significant leap in the area of trust with my now nine-year-old daughter, Haley, was the moment when I turned around and found Haley already mid-air, flying towards me with arms outstretched like a crazed capuchin monkey. (laughs) And by God's grace alone, in spite of the fact that I was instantly flooded with adrenaline, I managed to catch her and not wound either one of us. And as I kind of regain stability and I'm trying to catch my breath, I'm like, buddy, you have got to get daddy's attention before you jump because that could have ended very badly for both of us. And she just shrugged and said, I knew you would catch me. That is about the most clear and simple definition of trust that I can come up with. I have no fear in the falling because I know my father will catch me. That does not mean that I can make any ridiculous decision I want and God will make it succeed. That does not mean that my Heavenly Father won't ever let me experience consequences for my terrible choices. What it does mean is that I do not have to fear. There is no reason for fear because I know that my Heavenly Father is sufficient in all things and for all things. I know that He is good And I know that he does everything, first and foremost for his glory, but also for my joy. Kids, trust. I want to trust like that. Kids also believe extravagantly, right? Anything is possible and everything is magical. My four-year-old, Joey, wants to sit on everything. This is his new thing, right? It doesn't matter what it is. As we're driving down the road, he sees a horse, a car, a truck, a bus, a boat, a tractor, an industrial windmill. It doesn't matter. He points at it and says, I want to sit on that. Joey wants to sit on that. Buddy, that's, that's not our horse. You can't sit on that. That's 60 feet in the air. You can't sit on that. Whatever reason I have for why he can't do that is... He insists on, I want to sit on that. Plus, he has an eagle eye, and so we'll be in the backyard, and he will spot. We'll be playing, and all of a sudden, he just goes, plane, and we'll spot a plane, and then immediately responds with what? I want to sit on that. (laughs) Daddy, Joey wants to sit on that. I'm like, buddy, that's, that's irrational. But he does not listen to reason, as it turns out. 
No matter what variation of that is impossible I give him, his response is the same. A mix of equal parts, disappointment and betrayal. My son looks in my eyes with betrayal on his face. How could you do this to me? I clearly said I would like to sit on it. Why would you refuse me? Your own son. Now, he's, he's not able to communicate all that, but I see it in his eyes. I know that's what he's saying to me in his eyes. My son assumes, regardless of my very well-formulated arguments, I can explain all of the complications of distance and gravity and acceleration and, and personal and corporate ownership laws, and none of these things does he find in any way compelling because he assumes that I can get him to and on the plane that is flying 20,000 feet over our head at 500 miles per hour. Because, oh, and on top of that, feels like I'm the worst because since I am capable of doing that and not, I'm simply refusing him out of spite. Because my son assumes that his father can do anything. And so he asks and he expects. He asks with the full expectation of clearly you can do this, so why are you not? Comes to me with a handful of, I can't even tell what, just a pile of something that used to be some object but is now crumbles or ash. And he hands it to me and says, Daddy, fix it. I'm like, buddy, this is, this is not fixable. I can't fix this. And he goes, Joey, get it. And he goes shuffling off. He comes back again and hands me a screwdriver. <laughs> My buddy, this, this has been dismantled on an elemental level. I don't need a screwdriver. I would need a wizard to put this thing back together again. This is not possible. But to him, it's like, I've seen you fix things all the time. This is just a thing that needs to be fixed, so fix it. He doesn't understand that the last thing I fixed, I fixed by replacing the AA batteries. I can't, if I were to tape this back together, it would be more scotch tape than whatever the original object was. I can't, can't fix this, but his assumption is, but you can do anything. I've seen you fix other things, so I have no reason to believe you can't accomplish this. The assumption is that I have limitless resources and limitless ability, and as we age, we then develop the scarcity mentality. Pessimism is learned behavior, church. And I know, I can almost hear reverberating out of your heads all you pessimists who are saying, I am not pessimistic, I am realistic. Stop it. Stop doing that to yourself and to others. Realism is pessimistic doubt. That is, that is what that is. And let me tell you why we know that for sure. Because have you ever, in your entire life, ever heard anyone say to you, guys, here's the thing. Everything is going to be fantastic, and it's going to work out even better than we hoped. I just have to say it, guys. I'm, I'm just being realistic. No. No one has ever said that. 
Because that's not ever how we use the term realistic, right? We have only ever used the term realistic to describe how things are not going to work out, how they're going to fail, and it's going to be a huge disaster. Anytime someone finishes a sentence with, I'm just being realistic, everyone else is hearing in their head, wah, wah. Because that is the news that we are delivering, the bad news of why it's not going to work out. Because there is limited everything, right? Everything is limited. We see this scarcity mentality in the disciples over the last few weeks, right? How are we possibly going to feed all these people? I'm just being realistic, Jesus. We don't have enough money. Which one of us is the greatest? Because there can only be one, which means everyone else is a loser. So which one of us, Jesus, is the greatest? There's only one right side, and those guys over there obviously are not on it, so Jesus, make them stop so that we know who's right and who's wrong. Because there is limited reward, there's limited grace, there's limited provision. I need to make sure that I get enough. And if I see you getting some, that means I'm going to get less. And all of that scarcity mentality stirs up competition and division and anxiety and doubt and fear rather than like a child assuming that the father's resources are limitless because they are. Someday my son is going to come to the sad realization that his dad cannot fix everything and is incapable of most of the things that he asks of me. But I pray that by the grace of God, he never thinks that about his heavenly father that he realizes as he grows in his understanding of my limits, he grows in his understanding of his heavenly father's limitlessness, and he sees, oh man, all the things I thought my earthly father could be, my heavenly father actually is all the time and in every way. That he would know that his resources are limitless, that his grace is infinite, that he can have countless favorites and his attention never be in any way divided. And that he infuses everything with beauty and wonder and mystery. Do we think that it honors the Father more and aligns more with his faithfulness and faithfulness to him to operate in doubt, in practical thinking, and assuming that God is incapable, or in asking our Father with the kind of trust and belief? and faith that assumes that he is obviously capable of this, no matter how impossible it may seem to us. It is, it's easy for children to believe. We make it really hard on ourselves. We complicate things and make it difficult. For kids who assume that everything is infused by magic and mystery, believing even fantastic truths are easy. So you open up the word to them and you tell them that one time a missionary was eaten by a fish and then spit out on the ground later and then saw an entire city saved. They go, okay. You say, Jesus fed 5,000 people with a Lunchable. They go, that sounds about right. Jesus walked on water and then tells a storm to stop and it does. Of course he did. We grow skeptical. We infuse doubt. And as that doubt invades and erodes 
it corrodes our belief, and then disbelief becomes the default setting, right? We start looking for what's the practical explanation for this. There must be a practical explanation. We, and we think that as we grow in our wisdom, then we start saying, well, I mean, but I, as I read those stories, nobody is factoring in gravity and molecular stability and biometric, barometric pressure and all those things that affect weather. Like, they're not really thinking this through. And what we need is the eight-year-old to come back in to the conversation and say, uh, yeah, but Jesus made the molecules, so obviously he can tell them what to do. Dum-dum. Silly grown-up with your nonsense. Multiple times in Scripture, it warns us, the fool convinces his heart there is no God. And for many of us, as we've gotten older, we have lost much of our wisdom. Kids also depend entirely, even when they don't realize they're doing that. They're completely dependent. These little creatures cannot survive apart from us. An infant cannot feed itself, not clothe itself or house itself or clean itself. Right now, my son is in the in-between stage of potty training where he can tell us that he has to go, he can go himself, he can manage most of the details, although, sadly, the cleanup portion is a skill set he has yet to master. Which means, as I am minding my own business, making myself a sandwich in the kitchen, what I hear echoing through the house is, Daddy! Daddy! Wipe it, Joey! <laughs> okay, buddy. Be right there. Always daddy. Not mommy, mind you. Always daddy. If mommy walks in, a loving desire to be helpful and supportive, she is rebuffed and informed that she is to send in daddy. I am so very grateful for the privilege of my son's intimate trust. <laughs> like, like a child, do I approach my Heavenly Father with that same type of dependency, knowing that when I try to do it myself, I actually just create a much worse mess than I began with? Or do I put my faith in self-reliance, actually preferring the mess that I make over submitting to my Father who will do it correctly for me the first time? Lastly, kids do joy really well. It is a whole body experience, right? There's clapping, there's jumping, there's fist pumping. There's that smile that involves their whole face. In the most awesome moments, you get that laugh that starts way down deep in the belly and like boils up until it just explodes. It is the best. It is true, soul-deep delight, sometimes over something as simple as a bath or a banana, or seeing mommy's car pull in the driveway.
true joy and delight. We begin with all of these things. Right? Complete trust and extravagant belief and total dependence and this exultant joy. And then over time, we do something that we incorrectly defined maturing. We develop doubt and distrust and self-reliance, which according to Jesus makes it impossible for us to access the kingdom of God. So we're going to keep reading here. As normally we read these as two separate events, which I think we miss out on. Because what we have here is a contrast Contrasting the joyful dependence of children and Jesus saying, I wish you would be more like this with the detached self-reliance of the man on the other side. So what happens is as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone which is so brilliant because Jesus does at least two things here, probably more than that, but I'm only smart enough to catch two of the things that he does. One of them is he says, no one is good except God. So if you're calling me good, you're calling me God. So you can have proper context of who you're talking to right now. The other thing he does is he says, no one is good except God. So whatever list you're about to give me, it does not qualify you as good. Unfortunately, the man misses the point on both of these and goes on. Jesus says, you know what the commandments are. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he says to him, teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth. Nailing it. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He had compassion on him. And he said, you lack one thing. Go, and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Because <coughs> in their context, material wealth was God's blessing. And so that was God basically declaring, this guy's doing awesome. So they're shocked to hear that. But Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to them, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Our Father can do anything. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything to follow you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life the many who are first will be last and the last will be first. This man comes asking what he appears to think is a rhetorical question. 
Jesus, what do I have to do to achieve eternal life since I've pretty much done all the things? What he seems to be expecting to hear from Jesus is nothing. You're killing it. You're already in. He's not rude or disrespectful. He comes very respectfully. He just seems like a successful rule follower. right? This man would likely be a leader in the synagogue. He's successful, he's respected, he's devout. He would certainly be considered a pillar in his faith community. But Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter by going right after the man's heart. Right? The source, the center of his desires and his motivation. And he presents him with a question. You come to me asking of how to have eternal life. Are you willing to sacrifice what is temporary and will turn to dust and ash for what is eternal? Is this really what you want? And the man walks away disheartened, discouraged. Maybe because he's already made his decision and he's chosen the temporary treasure. We don't know. I don't want to be judgmental of this guy because it doesn't say where he ended up or what he decided on. All we know is that he heard Jesus' warning and he walked away discouraged because he realized, I'm not doing as well as I thought I was because it is not based on all that I have accomplished and all that I have acquired. He realized that he was in trouble and he had to choose who and what he would truly depend on. Jesus taught us where your treasure is, your heart will be also. The disciples are super confused, right? Because they assume that that earthly blessing means that God had already given them favor. Jesus says, no, no, for those who have stuff, for those who have accessibility and and opportunity, those are the people who are most likely to trust in those things rather than in their heavenly Father. For people who live in the wealthiest country on earth by a very wide margin, I hope we are all listening. I hope we are not dismissing this and go, well, I'm not a billionaire, so this doesn't qualify. I don't, this isn't talking to me. Yes, it is. We have an access to things that are available to us that are not available to the majority of the world. The fact that there's not a single person in this room right now that has to worry today if there's a place where they can get clean water is an experience that more than half of the world does not have. Over a billion people struggle to find clean water. That's a big deal. That is not an issue we even have to think about. We don't have to think about, is it possible that there is a place somewhere where I can find competent medical care? And if so, how many weeks will it take us to get there? We don't have to think about that at all. And it's not bad that we don't have to think about that. That is an incredible blessing and that is amazing. We should be very thankful for that. But we should also be aware that that colors what we trust, and what we expect. Those things that we're used to, those things that we have very easy access to, our comfort, our relative wealth, and easy access to just about anything can stir a sense of entitlement, and that can stir self-reliance, and that can stir doubt and disbelief, even among those who follow all the church rules.
we are in many respects a country of camels, and we will not make it through the needle without losing a significant amount of fur or hair or whatever camels are covered in. And when we do, it will certainly not be because of our effort. It is because of His miraculous grace. His disciples, in their concern, say, well, we've left all of our stuff to just follow you. We're entirely dependent on you. We've left our stuff and our goals and our former identities and our social standing, all that we've abandoned to, to just follow you. And Jesus not only does not rebuke them, he promises them reward. Men and women who had lost family and jobs and property and inheritance for the sake of following Jesus are told by Jesus, don't worry. You do not have to fear. Your Father will care for you extravagantly because the Father cares for his children. So we're going to end with a few practicals here. We want to we want to have correct ideas when we define spiritual maturity, right? We want to be the right kind of childlike, right? We don't want to be the wrong kind of childlike. And, and since we're all shaped by ideas, those, those ideas work into our heads and then into our hearts, and then they shape then how we live. The things that we come to believe shape how we live. And when those things are inaccurate, then, then like we're following a map that is full of errors, we don't end up in the place that we were intending to get. And we need to bear in mind that the enemy of our soul has a primary mode of operation, and that is an extensive disinformation campaign. He is the father of lies. He wants to pollute our sense of wonder. He wants to stir our doubts constantly. He wants to misdirect our dependence onto ourselves which is not a new tactic. He actually hasn't changed his tactic since the garden. Because right out of the gate, that's his attack. You really believe what God says? Wouldn't this all be better if you were in control? He derails us right out of the gate. So we want to have right ideas when we believe the lie that maturity means becoming more self-reliant and that we no longer need others then we operate and that is the trajectory that we go on. When we believe the lie that our experience is reality, then we don't expect to experience anything outside of what we have already experienced. Sometimes we can believe the lie that it is better to be realistic than to be accused of being a dreamer. And we stifle the wonder and the sense of awe that our Heavenly Father is trying to stir in our hearts. Instead, our Jesus urges his followers, and I wish you guys were more like kids. Again, we want to be the right kind of childlike because children are often used as an example in Scripture. And sometimes Scripture uses childlike to mean immature or ignorant. We do not want to be that. Sometimes Scripture uses childlike to mean innocent, which is good. Or, as Jesus seems to hear meaning to have the nature of a child. So there's bad childlike and good childlike. Since we're talking about how to study the Bible, I'll use a Bible example. There's a good kind of childlike in terms of how you read and study the Bible and a bad kind of 
childlike in, in reading and study the Bible. If you have been studying the Bible for 25 years and you still have no idea how to open it up and glean any helpful information out of it without relying entirely on commentaries or studies or curriculums or extra-biblical books, that is the wrong kind of childlike. If, however, you've been studying the Bible for 25 years and you still feel an overwhelming sense of awe when you open up that book and you are stirred with wonder and a sense of delight in all of the magic that is the extraordinary truths of Scripture. If you find real joy in the Spirit teaching you more and more about who your Father is and who your big brother Jesus is because you want to be just like them, that is the right kind of childlike in your Bible study. So the right kind of maturity is what we are after. And Paul, I think, gives us a really helpful definition of that in Ephesians chapter 4, where if you have your Bible, you can flip over there. If you're just in your Mark journaling Bible, we'll put it up on the screen for you. So what Paul says is he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds, which means pastors, that's what that word means, it means shepherd, and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Okay, so you're the saints and, and the, the pastors and teachers and, and apostles, their job is to equip the saints to do the work that God has saved us and created us to do. And what that work is, the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, so unity and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what Paul says maturity is, maturity is measured by how much you look like Jesus. It's that simple. How much do you, how mu- are you growing in your knowledge of and likeness to Jesus? That is what it means biblically to grow up, to grow into the image of the God whose image you bear. Anything less than that is an immature definition of maturity and not what we're after in the church. It says growing up, and I love this, there's the unity of the faith. There is unity in us together in our knowledge of God so that we may no longer be children. And here he means in the sense of immature and ignorant. No longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine and by human cunning or by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So there is trust and there is belief rather than just being tossed around by every doubt that is thrown at me. Church, we need to doubt our doubts more often. Our tendency is to doubt Jesus, to doubt the Spirit, to doubt the Father, to doubt the Word, and to put our full trust in our own irrational fears and confusion. We need to doubt our doubts, doubt the lie that Jesus, that God has a limited supply of resources. Doubt the lie that God does not have enough time to accomplish His promises. Doubt the lie that says that God is not in control or that he does not care. And instead, 
Listen to our brother James who says through the Holy Spirit, you don't have because you don't ask. If only you believed your father was capable of all that he is capable of, which is anything. I love the way John says this in his letter, 1 John chapter 5. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. That is an extraordinary promise, church. Do we pray with that kind of extravagant belief and trust in the one who can do anything? Or do we explain it away and we doubt and we try to give God an out? I don't know. Do we pray with extravagant belief to the one that Scripture says is able to do far more abundantly than all we would ask or even think according to the power that is at work within us. Oh, we need to depend entirely on Him, on Jesus, and on each other. Because Paul goes on in Ephesians, he says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head. So again, growing up, biblically, is growing into Christ more and more like Jesus from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So we depend on Jesus and we depend on each other. We know that we are truly maturing in Christ when we joyfully depend on one another. When we finally free ourselves from the immature nonsense that we can do this on our own that we have this all figured out, that I can do this under my own power, that none of you have anything that you can teach me or correct me on. That is spiritual immaturity and it is destructive. Instead, when we finally mature enough to understand how much we need one another and the body begins working together, not only are you growing, but everyone else is all growing and maturing together. That sounds awesome. Lastly, we need to do joy better, church. We need to learn something from the kids. We need to do joy better. A joyless Christianity is a Christless Christianity. It is a gospelless Christianity. It is a graceless Christianity. I absolutely love how Peter says this. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I'm going to read that one more time. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. I don't even have the words for it. I have to throw my hands up in the song because the words just feel like they're not, they're not reaching it yet. I have to celebrate. True 
Biblical spiritual maturity is always marked by joy. It does not mean triviality. It means true soul-deep joy, the kind of soul-deep joy that allows a Paul, while he is chained to a wall in a Middle Eastern prison, to be singing hymns of delight because he knows his Jesus is better. Real, true, soul-deep, undignified, childlike joy. Considering who our God is and what he has done and who we get to be because of that, how could we not be filled with joy? Father, help us. Please help stir in us that true, real, soul-deep joy that comes from fully depending, fully trusting, and fully delighting in you. For those of us who, who feel oppressed by doubt and by discouragement, please awaken our sleepy hearts. Fill us with a sense of wonder and awe that comes from knowing who you are. And that you not only love us, that you not only have done this amazing miracle of saving us from the wrath that we deserve, but you go even further to adopt us as your daughters and sons into your family to love and live forever. God, God stir our delight in that truth and that reality. God, build on the foundation of trust a sense of wonder and joy. Jesus, it is you and you alone. We thank you. We need you. We love you. It's in your name that we pray.